The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In the previous episodes, we began to ask and answer various classic questions about death, hell, and the afterlife. Our goal was and is to provide correct definitions and a biblical worldview framework from which we can biblically define and understand various words and terms commonly used regarding death hell, and the afterlife, which oftentimes cause some confusion. More importantly, our goal is to allow God's truth and reality to provide tangible hope and joy for our eternal future for those who would, by His grace, be called to do so. In the previous episodes, we identified 14 terms for definition and discussion. At this point, we have largely defined and discussed the first nine terms, including death, the intermediate state, sleep, the grave, Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, 
Tartarus, and Paradise. In this episode, we continue with questions, definitions, and discussion regarding the remaining five terms, including Abraham's bosom, hell, purgatory, lake of fire, and heaven. With this in mind, let's return to our vocabulary and terminology list and proceed to define the following terms according to a proper biblical world and life view. Number 10. Abraham's Bosom The phrase Abraham's bosom occurs only once in the Bible in Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31. Here, as previously discussed in episode 6, Lazarus, a poor man who died, is seen in Jesus' parable as being in Abraham's bosom. While this may be the only instance in the Bible involving Abraham, the general idea behind it is not isolated. For example, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 3, we find the following, quote, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished up and grew it up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his own bosom and was unto him as a daughter. In John chapter 13 verse 23 we read, quote, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, unquote. Further, in John chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus speaking, we find, quote, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, which he hath declared him, unquote. All of these examples, including Abraham, assumed the pre-existing cultural customs of the Orientals, where it was not uncommon to recline during meals, or for good friends or family members or loved ones to lay in repose in the lap and or the bosom of another. It was a demonstration of intimacy, closeness, friendship, and affection. Each of the above verses bear out the truth of this definition. Even today, it is understood that to open one's arms and closely embrace another into one's bosom indicates an accepting, trusting love and close friendship for that person. In the case of Abraham, Abraham had a singularly distinctive position of honor among the Jews then and now. Abraham was and is the patriarchal figurehead of all Jews. Abraham was the one to whom God had bestowed his personal promises and covenant for Abraham's descendants to be as the sand of the sea, and to whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Even more importantly, as Paul makes the case in chapter 4 of Romans, Abraham was the father and the prototype of those who would be imputed God's righteousness through the faith that they exhibit in God and his promises. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 4 of Romans, 
Paul then reminds us that God imputed righteousness to Abraham was given prior to circumcision in order to point out that the righteousness in question is not a matter of fulfilling the law, but rather a matter of the heart. Finally, in verse 24, we are told that God will impute the same righteousness to anyone who will, quote, believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, unquote. Paul echoes the same message in Galatians chapter 3 and clarifies that the promise and guarantee of God's imputed righteousness to those who, like Abraham, exercise faith in the living God and on Christ being raised from the dead, including Gentiles, will be considered the children of Abraham, and more importantly, children of the living God. As we consider all of this, we must remember that in the Jewish-Judeo-Christian mindset, Abraham would be the archetype who died in active faith in the living God and his promises, and whose soul-slash-spirit went into paradise in the intermediate state to await the coming Messiah and the resurrection which all children of God look forward to. Once there, as this figurehead, it could be said going forward that Abraham metaphorically stood waiting to welcome and receive anyone who, according to his example, physically died in active faith in the living God and his promises. Having done this, those who did die could be said to be in Abraham's bosom. In other words, the righteous dead, those like Abraham in faith joined Abraham and together found comfort in their joint unity of faith in the resurrection to come. This term of being in Abraham's bosom was understood precisely as explained by the Jews and rabbis of the intertestamental period. The general situation of conscious comfort, reassurance, and peace of those whose soul-slash-spirit resided there would also be synonymous with the term paradise as discussed in episode 6. At this time, it should be understood that since these people in paradise and or Abraham's bosom are souls-slash-spirits who are without their physical bodies due to physical death, that these images and language regarding a bosom or other physical attributes are metaphors, colloquialisms, and euphemisms meant to communicate concepts about the spiritual realm which would otherwise be difficult or impossible to relate to. Following the progressive changes in God's plan of salvation, when Christ was crucified and died, as stated before, his soul-slash-spirit descended into the lower parts where he is said to have, quote, preached unto the spirits in prison there, unquote. Romans, Galatians, and especially Hebrews 11 reveal that the reason that Abraham and other heroes were heroes was because, like Abraham, they each in their own way exercised faith in God and his promises, as well as considering themselves pilgrims in a foreign land. 
Thus, the common denominator was that those who died in faith had the expectation and promise of a Messiah who would reconcile the terrible events of Genesis 3 and the state of sin, separation, the fall, and death upon all mankind. If we continue with the hypothesis so far, we see that paradise and or Abraham's bosom was a compartment or dimension associated as being part of Sheol slash Hades. According to Luke chapter 16 and other Jewish and rabbinic teachings, paradise and or Abraham's bosom would have been a destination exclusive to those people who physically died while in active faith in the living God and who were awaiting the Messiah. It is natural and logical to see that when Christ descended, i.e. the descensus ad inferos, and preached to these people in the intermediate state, that the preaching likely included the revelation that he was in fact the Messiah. Further, it would be logical to assume that Christ preached the reality and truth of his atonement and finished work upon the cross which was now complete and to which each of them could place their faith. Lastly, it is logical to assume that Christ preached the truth and though in fact he had physically died, death would have no final power over him because he was Lord over all, including death, and that by his power he would be resurrected back to life and that he would ascend to the Father to assume all power, all glory, and all majesty which was his due. It was then logical and natural that since everyone in paradise slash Abraham's bosom had already placed their faith in God and come to know him by their relationship, which they held by faith, that they would now recognize the manifestation of Christ among them and would be ready to listen, hear, and follow him now as they had done in life. In short, when Christ announced he would resurrect and ascend to the Father and lead them as their shepherd to the reward in heaven, they were ready, eager to follow him. This is essentially the meaning of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, which says, quote, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men, unquote. Continuing to follow the logic of these texts, it is clear that if everyone in Abraham's bosom or paradise followed Christ to ascend to the Father, then that area of the intermediate state, whether we call it paradise or Abraham's bosom, was now empty. If there was someone left, then it would stand to reason that they had never had their faith relationship in God to begin with. Thus, these people, this group, or perhaps the entire dimension or compartment was moved or changed at the point of Christ's ascension to a different location or dimension. Indeed, the intermediate state as labeled by paradise and or Abraham's bosom is entirely connected to the event 
and results of Christ's atoning work. Consequently, the working model for the who, what, when, where, why, and how all get answered as to where we are historically in relation to the event of Christ's atoning work. This is not to say that the labels or the realities behind the labels, paradise and or Abraham's bosom, no longer exist. Instead, we must realize that if we are going to refer to a state labeled Abraham's bosom, that this state would accompany where Abraham and his bosom, whether literal or metaphorically, reside in reality. The same can be said of paradise. This is again the explanation as to why we hear vocabulary terms, metaphors, and colloquialisms which appear to change. Again, in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 8 through 9, 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 18 and 19, Philippians chapter 2 verses 8 through 11, and Luke chapter 23 verse 43, we find clear allusions to the fact that Christ, quote, descended, unquote, to the lower parts, identified as paradise and or Abraham's bosom. Whereas in contrast, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, and Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, we find clear indications where being, quote, caught up, unquote, is part of the process for experiencing paradise. Here it should be noted that the original word translated, quote, descended in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 9 comes from the Greek word katabiano, meaning to, quote, to go down, come down, or descend, unquote. The word translated, quote, caught up, unquote, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 4 is the Greek word, quote, harpazo, unquote, which gets translated in the Latin version of the Bible, from which we get the English word rapture. The use of these uh, divergent terms cannot be reconciled without a change. Additionally, as stated, the appearance of and connection of the, quote, tree of life in the midst of paradise in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, all cumulatively support the fact that Christ's atoning work had a transformative effect on the status of paradise and or Abraham's bosom, as well as the intermediate state in general. Perhaps the real question is, whether or not the transformation and or change accomplished by Christ's atoning work is one which redefines or changes paradise and or Abraham's bosom from the status of the intermediate state to that of the final state. Before we can address answering this question, we should first define the term, quote, final state, unquote. We will defer both discussions until we address the term heaven, where we will tackle the term, quote, final state, unquote. Number 11, hell. The word hell, as we understand it today, is an English word. The Bible was not written initially in English. 
the English word hell does not appear until the Middle Ages. As to the origin of the word hell, some believe that the word hell is an Anglo-Saxon word which very generally refers to the netherworld of the dead. Alternately, some believe that the word hell is a spin-off from the original Proto-Germanic word, quote, hull, H-U-L, which means cave, a hole or hollow part of the ground, which were often thought to be gateways to the underworld. Over time, the word hell began to be synonymous with the Greek word Hades, which had many of the same characteristics as previously discussed. As time went on, the definitions and understanding of hell were influenced by secular and religious writers such as Pope Gregory I in his Dialogues series in 593 AD, where he relates a series of conversations between himself and another person with the aim of giving instruction and comfort to his readers. The conversations further relate various opinions and theology regarding the nature of hell. Later, around 1300 AD, an Italian poet, prose writer, literary theorist, and moral philosopher named Dante Alighieri wrote Dante's Divine Comedy, which is an allegory taking the form of an imaginary journey through hell, purgatory, and paradise. These literary works, along with the theological discussions via the struggles of the mainstream apostolic and heretical factions of the church, further added in many respects to the theology of hell. These theologies of hell run the gamut from opinionated and interesting to blatantly spurious, heretical, or even paganistic. Nevertheless, some of these ideas still persist today and have incorporated themselves into the fabric of accepted reality concerning hell. Over time, the word hell became the mainstream word which replaced its clo closest actual counterpart, Gehenna. Once the word hell became an accepted word, it was natural for translators to incorporate this word into the King James Bible in 1611. In fact, we see interpreters who translated the Old and New Testament using the English word hell, sometimes indiscriminately as an interpretation of various Hebrew and or Greek words such as Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, and the Lake of Fire. However, as in the case of Hades, which was a Greek word to translate the Hebrew word Sheol to a Hellenistic audience, we should be careful not to grandfather the spurious, mythological, or paganistic aspects of hell into our understanding of what the various writers of the Bible were trying to convey. Instead, we must grant that the translators were, for the most part, innocently focused on using words which were familiar to them or to their contemporary audience to convey older cultural ideas and terminology. Unfortunately, their use of more modern vocabulary, while perhaps easier to relate to modern readers, 
is often less suited to communicating correct theology or doctrine regarding life, death, and the afterlife. As a result, whenever we read a Bible translation where the word hell appears, we essentially need to have a Berean attitude and research what actual word appears in the original language, as well as all of the cultural issues of the day in which these words were used as our first step in understanding the underlying topic. Now, if we're going to be completely honest and candid with ourselves, the real issue of being able to define hell and any of these other terms is our emotions. The blatant truth is that as sinful, rebellious humans... We look at the realities of certain things and we don't like what we see. The things we see we don't agree with. What God reveals sometimes makes us feel uncomfortable. This dynamic is not new. Essentially, this is the same issue which caused the fall of man to begin with. God gave a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve were not really fully submitted to trusting and believing God about the reality of what he said. If they had been, then they would not have disobeyed him. This is the same issue with so many things today, including what God says about death, hell, and the afterlife. We have trouble submitting to the complete sovereignty and wisdom of God. We are not God, and we cannot fully comprehend all of his nature and attributes. We tend to anthropomorphize God and his attributes to agree with our own human notions of who we think God should be and what attributes he should demonstrate and which attributes he should limit or eliminate. We imagine that our finest human philosophies of fairness, social justice, and Equity should govern God and his word, rather than God unilaterally governing his creation according to his own sovereign will. As has been stated so many times throughout the various episodes and podcasts to date, mankind is faced with a dichotomy decision. Either God is the author and ultimate authority for meaning, morals, truth, reality, beauty, and significance for all things? Or each man believes they are? This is the problem with defining hell and the other terms. Many people, particularly Mr. Ash, look at hell and see an ethical or moral problem with hell or the other terms because they see some aspect that they define as unfair. Typically, Mr. Ash concludes that hell is unfair or inconsistent with the belief that if there is a God, God is supposed to be a God of love. If God is love, then how can a loving God choose to send anyone to hell and to conscious torment for eternity? This is a classic example of how Mr. Ash creates a straw man argument for the character and nature of God and then proceeds to attempt mock and destroy God on the basis of a flawed argument. 
Mr. Ash forgets that God has many attributes, including love, justice, mercy, righteousness, holiness, etc. Each and every one of God's attributes are true, perfect, and immutable. However, when we, or Mr. Ash, pick and choose God's attributes like a buffet lunch, then the outcome for our view of God and his nature become imbalanced and will collapse. In every case, whenever or wherever we fail to exercise a high view of God, God will cease to be God in our view to that same degree. In the end, whether we are talking about hell or any of the other terms, Indeed, whenever we pick up scripture, we must be ready to agree with Paul on his epistle to the Romans in saying, quote, Let God be true, but every man a liar, unquote. God is the creator and we are his creation. God does not have, nor does he need, any of us as his board of directors to get things done. It doesn't matter if I or the vast majority of people agree to disagree with God. There is no consensus lobby group to which God can be changed or overthrown. God is God. Get over it. Unfortunately, because history is replete with the spirit of rebellion in man and man's unwillingness to one degree or another to submit to God's sovereign will, we have confusion and error born of that rebellion. Our attempts to redefine, reinterpret, change, modify, add or eliminate God's revelation in his word often and inevitably leads to error, confusion, and heresy. An example of this, as already discussed, is the doctrine of soul annihilation. Here, because there are some who cannot emotionally deal with the idea that any person's soul will suffer eternal conscious suffering, they instead insist that God will, quote, annihilate, unquote, that person's soul from his existence and from consciousness so that that person will not have to deal with that consequence and ultimately neither will the one who is doing the theorizing. Another example is conditional immortality or soul sleep. Here again, in order to avoid the emotional unpleasantness of imagining any soul having to endure conscious suffering, be it temporary or eternal, some would theorize, as stated, that upon physical death, God poofs every man's soul out of existence into an inert state as a memory in the mind of God. Eventually, some of or all these people will be, quote, recreated, unquote, from God's memory and live forever. Others simply never knew they existed at all and thus will not, quote, unquote, suffer. Still, others like the universalists theorize that everyone will go straight to heaven and there is no hell. Or everyone who goes to hell will eventually be forgiven and they will go to heaven and hell will be emptied. 
Whatever the nuanced theory may be, the common thread which exists within all of these doctrines is the underlying emotional discomfort with one or more particulars regarding the consequences involving hell and the final state. Perhaps the easiest and most straightforward way to understand this is to say that without there being a hell or Gehenna, or whatever label you want to give to an eternal punishment, there can be no meaningfulness to eternal bliss and joy under the label heaven if everything we as humans do in this current life, no matter how quote-unquote good, or how quote-unquote evil they are, ends up with everyone getting the same participation award, and there is no objective motivation or reason to do anything besides gratify whatever desires we have. If everyone goes to heaven regardless, then where is God's justice, righteousness, and holiness? If everyone goes to hell, regardless, then where is God's love, mercy, and forgiveness? In order to perfectly demonstrate all of God's attributes, God must sovereignly allocate His will in all directions according to His perfect will and wisdom. If so be that we are children of His grace, then the correct perspective is to understand God would be just and righteous according to his holiness to throw us one and all into hell because according to Romans 3, we have all sinned. We have all come short and there is none that doeth good, no, not one. If, by his grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness, he has chosen to redeem me, then my reaction should not be to accuse him for those he has not sovereignly chosen, but rather to give infinite thanks and praise that he has chosen me despite the existence of any merit on my part. For the time being, however, this will conclude this episode. Please join me for part 8 of this series. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com Thank you for listening.